This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 154, Kai Delaney returns with a Virgin Island trip report. Hello, friends. This is Kurt. We still have some spaces available for the Adventure Sports Podcast get-together that's going to be at Mudrocks in Louisville, Colorado on April the 22nd. Please RSVP by going to adventuresportspodcast.com and clicking the RSVP button on the upper right. We look forward to meeting you there. It's going to be a fun time, and Peter Schuster is going to do a presentation on through hiking the Continental Divide Trail. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today we have returning guest Kai Delaney with us. Kai was on in episode 104, and in that episode, she explained how she transitioned from a life as an attorney to an adventure-focused life. Her favorite adventures are whitewater and sea kayaking, sailing, and skiing, and she is here today to give us a trip report on a trip to the Virgin Islands that she took with her son Tobin for 28 days a sailing trip, and we're excited to have her here so we can hear all about it. Kai, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Uh, You bet. It's an honor to have you back again. Great. I'm glad to be here. So, Kai, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a mom to a four-year-old named Tobin, and um, I live in western North Carolina in the mountains, and we have always gotten outside from the time he was really little, camping and doing outdoor activities, and this was our first longer, um, longer stint doing something together in the outdoors. So why did you choose this trip to the Virgin Islands? I grew up on the water and, um, had always, um, loved sailing and, um, had a sailboat with my sweetie when I was about 18 and fantasized. I thought if I am ever a mom, a parent, I'd love to take my kids sailing. And, um, I'm a single mom. And for a long time, I just didn't think I could take him by myself and last winter, I was really sick and reading um, things on the internet. And I came across a story about a female pirate named Anne Bonny. And Anne Bonny really reframed for me what was possible as a single mom. She was a pirate in the 1800s. And when her boat got seized and um, she landed behind bars, Anne was three months pregnant, pled her belly and they did not hang her. Um, she escaped, went on a boat, sailed down to the Caribbean, had her baby on the boat, and sailed with the baby. And I thought, if someone in the 1800s can do that by herself, I can definitely put together a crew and take my four-year-old sailing. <laughs> That's what an interesting way to be motivated, huh? Yeah, all of our lives are a range of possibilities. And we, you know, it's kind of up to us to seize the one that's the most appealing. And um, it was really inspiring to know that I wasn't as limited as I thought I was. So you started planning the trip for 28 days in the Virgin Islands. Um, What were the goals of the trip? I really wanted to expose my son to the water. And um, 
you know, our kids absorb absolutely everything that, um, that we do and we bring to them and that we feel. And I know that as a single mom, Tobin has seen me stressed out and he has seen me worried and um, lonely and sad. And I also wanted him to know the best parts of me. And I think that's myself around water, the freedom I feel, the sense of wonder and beauty and possibility. And I wanted him to experience that and also to see me in that light and um, as strong and capable. Mm. Well, how did Tobin do on the trip? So that was it 28 days on the boat or just 28 days travel included? Uh, 28 days on the boat it was about um, probably a little bit over a month, including getting down there. So that's a lot for Tobin. How old is he now? He's turning five or six? He'll turn five in October. So he um, he's he's four. And, um, you know, it was really, it was incredible to see um, his growth during a month. And, you know, I, I don't think I realize how big a month is in the time frame of a four-year-old. Mm. When we, um, when I was planning to go down there, I really debated about bringing a DVD player. I'm not a big screen time person. And a lot of people told me, yeah, it'll be a lifesaver when you're on the boat and you're figuring it out and getting the crew to sail and you can stick him in the cabin and he can have a movie um, and be distracted. And so um, I broke down and bought a DVD player and we were um, in the islands on New Year's. We flew down New Year's, New Year's Eve, and we were at a tiki hut and having dinner and um, Tobin was had the DVD player started for the very first time. Poor thing got sick, threw up all over the DVD player. Oh, no. And it didn't work the entire time. And uh, he spent the next three days talking about it and talking about the movies that we had brought down and crying about that. And then an amazing thing happened. He never talked about movies again. He started talking about what was right around him. And he would start playing pretend with everything. We had um, cans of food. And he created skyscrapers and buildings from them. And with pens, he would make buses and cities. It was incredible to see how how present he was without being distracted um, by by movies. And that he would really just stare out at sea and kind of daydream. So it was a blessing in disguise. I didn't know it at the time, but I was so grateful that we didn't have any kind of DVD player for him on board. <laughs> Oh, that's that's a good story. It just goes to show, you know, the the screens are very, very distracting and very entertaining, and and parents probably lean on them just a little bit too much to distract their kids sometimes. And I think it's cool though because kids naturally are creative, and if the screen's not there, it doesn't take too long before they find a way to engage their environment and uh, enjoy where they are and what they're doing so much more. I think there's a lesson in that for all of us, whether we're sailing or on a trip or not. Oh, absolutely. And we, we started making up, um, different kinds of TV. Like we were, um, at an island that had goats and we would call it the goat, uh, goat TV. And we'd look at the goats feeding and the mama going on her back hooves to get leaves for the babies. And we would look at flying fish and point out turtles and really kind of talk and giggle about the animals that were right around us. It was, it was really cool. So Kai, 28 days on a sailboat is a long time with a, with a young child who's not known how to sail before. How did he do? Did he take to the boat okay? Was he able to help out with chores around the boat? I mean, how does a four-year-old plug into that environment? It was really um, funny because I had bought a harness and a tether thinking that I would have to clip him in 
to keep him safe when the boat heeled over. And the thing was that he was way more aware of um, being afraid than I thought. He he was, as soon as the boat angled at all, he felt way more comfortable going down into the cabin and mm. would create a nest in the um, forward cabin near the bow where the boat narrows and hang out and relax. And so I never really needed to strap him in. He he was so aware of um, being nervous about that. And that said, um, you know, the loads on a sailboat are really heavy. It's hard to give kids lines um, to pull on because it, they could really get hurt. But there were a lot of little tasks that he did, like turning the motor on. And he would put the ladder down when it was time to go swimming. And he learned to help put the anchor down. And um, he would ask about how the sails worked and was so curious. He could explain what it meant to tack and why we couldn't sail directly into the wind. And he knew where the wind was coming from. So that was really incredible to see him be, be curious about what was going on and also become a lot more confident walking around the boat and, um, you know, uh, hopping right in to help sweep or do the things that we needed to do to keep the boat uh, in good maintenance every day. You know, there's some blogs online that I've read about families who have uh, decided to raise their kids on boats and just adopt a cruising lifestyle. But what's unique about this is you're able to tell us um, how a small child did kind of on the first time, you know, the first big trip. And so it's neat to see how he adapted. Did he get seasick or anything? <laughs> Um, he did get seasick, but one thing that happened is he reverted to pooping his pants and <laughs> oh, it happened no. about six times. Um, and I think it was a combination. I later learned that that can be a form of seasickness. Um, and the other thing is that he refused to eat anything but cans of corn. And I don't know if that was like his one way of exerting power or control in the circumstances of not having a lot of other things certain, but, um, he ate a can of corn every day. And, uh, one day he was like, mom, I have to go to the bathroom. And I ran and grabbed him, yanked his bathing suit down and put him over the stern of the boat. And he was pooping in the boat, pieces of corn and white tipped reef sharks came up to feed off of it. (laughs) We had this amazing show of all of these white reef, uh, sharks swimming around in the surface of the water. Oh man, you know, the unexpected, who would have thought, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was, um, it was really funny to kind of think that, yeah, uh, you never know the next thing that's going to happen on a boat. Oh, that's fun. Well, will you describe for us one of the best days of the trip? I think one of the best days was our last day there. A lot of parts of uh, the BVI can be fairly crowded and touristy. Um, and then res- there are resorts, um, built up, but, um, there's an island, Salt Island that, um, nobody lives on and there are no businesses on. And, um, on the last day we went and anchored off of Salt Island and we swam in and there was nobody else there. And we decided to skinny dip and, um, had just an incredible time having the island to ourselves. We hiked up to the top and it was this, um, mountain view that allowed this vista of the Atlantic and the Caribbean. And it was wild up there. There were a lot of goats feeding and walking around and the wind was blowing our hair. And it was an incredible way to say goodbye to the experience and to the month and kind of to have that little piece of solitude in the islands. Mm, It does sound nice. 
You know, before we started recording here, I mentioned the snow that we've had. In the last eight days, we've had four snowstorms, one of them 29 inches deep. Um, that's, you know, that's life at 8,600 feet where we live. But this time of the year, I start longing for the warmth of spring, and it, it seems like it's always delayed here. So <laughs> thank you for telling us about the Caribbean. Time. <laughs> I mean, it, it helps me, a little bit of vicarious uh, a living, but... Was it pleasant? Was it really nice? It was incredibly nice. And it was, every day was different in terms of um, being able to explore new places and new islands. And they all had a different feel and sensibility. The water was constantly um, moody. And sometimes it would be gray and restless and stirred up. And other times it would be completely still and the visibility 20 feet deep and you could um, see lots of marine life everywhere. And it was really neat being so aware of the environment around us. And, um, you know, when you're sailing and under sail, you feel the wind on your ears before you can see it in the, uh, in the sails themselves. And so you're already reacting and anticipating what to do. And when you're sleeping um, with your boat anchored, all night long you hear the groan of the anchor and the pull. And um, so you know what the swell is doing when the wind is picking up. You um, leave all the windows open to air out the boat at night. But when it rains, as it often does in the Caribbean, you have to get up and close them so you don't get water in your boat. And I love that sense of knowing exactly what what was happening with the weather. And every night we'd look up at the moon. We saw every sunrise and every sunset. And um, every time we would moor or anchor, the first thing we would do is put on our fins and snorkel and go hop out the boat and uh, swim around for an hour or two and look for turtles and animals there and kind of get to know an island by the critters that lived underneath the water. Mm. So was Tobin able to, to snorkel with you? Um, absolutely. He, <laughs> he started out snorkeling on my back like a baby turtle. And he would put his arms around my neck and kind of kick with me and didn't really put his head into the water. Um, and at first, he was really reluctant to go very far from the boat. But we started to put our dinners into dry bags and we would swim to islands and have picnic dinners and um, see the sunset. And by the end, Tobin would look at an island and be like, Mama, we can swim there. <laughs> and he would be the first one to hop in the water and um, put the swim ladder down and he'd swim further away from the boat, further away from me. It was really incredible to see his confidence grow. Mm. What did he think of the marine wildlife? Oh, he loved it. We saw dolphins one day. Dolphins are not that common there. And um, one day we were sailing around the outer side of Tortola, one of the bigger islands. And um, he was the first to spot dolphins off the bow and he was so excited. And we were all just, uh, you know, dolphins are so playful in the way they arc back and forth. And you can see they're doing it because it's fun, you know, and they, they love to feel the water against them and the movement. And they swam with us next to us for about 10 minutes. So it was really neat to see them surface. And on the um, second to last day, Tobin was the first person to see a turtle. And he said, look, it's a turtle over there. And it was so neat because we had all been exclaiming every time we saw turtles or other animals. Um, But to know that Tobin really got it and that he was looking out too. And um, it felt like he was really part of the crew and part of the experience and internalizing what it meant to be in the Caribbean. 
Oh, that's cool. So now that you've done the 28-day venture, would you consider cruising full-time with Tobin? I don't know that I would cruise full-time. I think one of the difficulties that I see with um, folks who are cruising full-time is that it's tough to live on a boat and keep it light enough that you can really sail and do a lot of sailing. People end up like accumulating a lot of stuff, and whenever you're sailing, the boat goes pretty sideways. Um, and so I think um, that piece of it might be tough to kind of uh, live on a boat and keep it late enough to really get a lot of cruising time in. And I also really love living in the mountains, but um, I will definitely take him sailing again. So what was the boat that you were on on this trip, just so people have some context? We were on a 34-foot boat, so that has two cabins in it and a head. There was not enough flat room anywhere to lay down completely on the deck. So, like, we had kind of considered doing yoga or something like that. We'd see other people doing sit-ups or push-ups on their boat, but we didn't really have that kind of room. The boat was pretty contoured in all areas. We had a little stove downstairs. as a propane stove, and we had an ice box. We cooked almost all of our meals on board the boat. Going out is rather expensive in the islands because a lot of restaurants are connected to resorts, kind of upscale resorts. And it was really nice to be able to cook meals and sit outside and look at the water and greet other people as they were anchoring or mooring around us. So was this a monohull or was it a catamaran? Yeah, it was a monohull. So it was, you know, a pretty simple boat. So a lot of people have uh, bigger boats, you know, that sail around the Caribbean. But um, but it was nice to have a boat that you could feel how it handled and was super responsive. Well, what is your opinion of uh, taking a large catamaran? Do you think that would have been a little bit better for a family on the water? Um, I have real mixed opinions about catamarans. I think, you know, if you're doing a longer, more open water cruising, a catamaran makes a lot of sense um, because you basically have two boats. It's a lot faster. It's a lot flatter, a lot more stable. The downside of a catamaran, I think, is it just doesn't feel like sailing to me. I really like getting sideways and feeling the, how dynamic a boat is and um, really kind of seeing what you can do and how far you can angle it up into the wind. I like that feeling a lot, but catamarans are a lot more comfortable. And so I think depending on your family and um, everyone's comfort level, a catamaran can be a great way to get people out on the water who might not necessarily like to be sideways and that sporty in a boat. Yeah, there's a thought I hadn't thought of. The one thought that I've always had about catamarans is if you got into some really high winds, really high seas, you know, a catch or a sloop can right itself if it if it gets knocked down. But if a catamaran gets knocked down, I think you're kind of hosed. Yeah, but you also have basically two boats. So if there's a problem with one haul, you, you've got the other haul. And the likelihood of anything happening, you know, that extreme... Um, is is really remote. And with a catamaran, you can go a lot faster kind of in open water and really outrun some of the weather. So a lot of people for kind of longer distance sailing do opt for a catamaran with for a catamaran for like for those reasons. Interesting. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including... 
Black Crows, DPS, Dinafet, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. Hey, River Rats, you've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yamper River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. Well, you told us about one of the best days of the trip. Tell us about a bad day of the trip. What, what do you think the worst day was? <laughs> uh, we had a couple. One of the worst days, I guess, was one of the worst nights. Um, we did our best to anchor. And so that means that um, the, the two ways that you can spend the night are either putting your anchor down or you can pay and secure the boat to a mooring ball. And that's kind of already fixed and connected to the bottom of the sea. Um, anchoring's free. You have to be really careful that you do it in the right area so you're not disturbing the seabed. There's turtle grass and coral, and you don't want to hurt either one of those. And the other thing with anchoring is that it's kind of on you to know that the anchor is going to hold. And so you're looking for a spot that's deep, but not too deep, um, that that's sandy, that you've got a good hold. And also, when the boat swings, you're not going to hit another boat. So there was one night, and we were um, we were anchored in a bay in about 10 feet. So that's not really that deep. And um, we woke up at two in the morning and the boat had drifted. The anchor had not held. And we were really close to a couple other boats. Um, so I started up the motor right away. And before I could even steer us out of um, the harbor uh, in between those two boats, we I could feel the keel hit the sand and we ran aground. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. And so it's one of those, you know, you just kind of like make a gut decision really fast to goose the motor one way or the other, you know, and put it full throttle and hope for the best that you'll get unstuck. And, and it worked and we ended up grabbing a mooring ball and went to sleep until dawn and then, and then left. Um, but yeah, every time you sleep under anchor, you're always aware of the wind and, you know, worried. Is the anchor going to hold? Is it getting too windy? Do we really get a really good hook, you know? Um, and so, and that night was the first night, was probably 20 days in that our anchor didn't hold. And we were all 
pretty tired the next day. You know, I think I would have a hard time sleeping just out of fear that the anchor would drag, you know? So how do you sleep knowing that that can happen? It's always pretty hard to um, to sleep with under under while you're anchored um, if if it's windy. But um, you get kind of used to it, and you and you don't get the best sleep on a sailboat because you do hear all the elements constantly. There's only you know that fiberglass slab between you and the water outside, so it, it does feel dynamic. And there's this element of really being connected to what's going on. And it was also just one of those really empowering things of knowing we could look around and assess and decide if we put our anchor in a good place. And a lot of times we would spend an hour pulling up the anchor and going somewhere else in the harbor and putting it down and waiting um, 30 or 40 minutes on the boat to see what happened, to see if it held, to see what the wind did. And it was it was neat to grow our confidence and our skills and get better at figuring those things out. Life on a sailboat. You know, I've uh, I've been cruising on a boat one time for three days, and it was, a, it was a really great experience. But I don't know enough about boats to really understand all the connections that you're talking about. So thanks for sharing with us. I have long wanted to do exactly the trip that you did and extended time down in the, in the Caribbean to experience all of that. So overall, was it a, a good thing to do? Oh, absolutely. In, an incredible way to really do something that I felt like I was growing personally. I had never been the person responsible for a boat before. I had been on boats. I had crewed for other people. I was really good at helping. I had never been the person who saw the big picture. Um, And doing that at the same time as parenting was an incredible growth opportunity for me Um, and was also really, I think, important for Tobin in terms of um, seeing me in a different role than his mama. On the on the first day, we went and we got the boat, and um, I had to go out with the captain and show them that I was capable of skippering the boat. And I had the wheel, and I was um, attacking the boat, and Tobin di- dove for my knee and grabbed onto it and said, Mama can't sail the boat! And oh, he was no. frantic because he wanted me to hold him. That, you know, I was the person you know, to hold him. My arms were meant to comfort him, not to be sailing the boat. And, um, and by the end of the month, you know, he was calling me captain mom. So it was (laughs) kind of funny that he could really see me as being capable and, um, both his mother and also this person who could do a lot of other things as well. I love that. It reminds me of, uh, some of the children I met in Kenya years ago, but I was amazed at how young children in Kenya had a real sense of of belonging and place in the society there mm. and how mature they could be when it was time to be mature. And I realized it had a lot to do with the amount of time that they spent side by side with their parents. Because in Kenya, you know, if the men or the women are working out in the field, then the baby is with them. Right. You know, people wear their babies everywhere they go, and the children are always a part of the adult activities that are going on. And it was impressive. These kids, just uh, when they needed to, were well beyond their years in in knowledge and wisdom and know-how, and it was just really impressive to see. And I think that that's what happens in a setting like you had with Tobin on the boat. Mm, I can see that. And he was... Um, absolutely involved in every small errand that we had to do. Things that 
you know, we take for granted here, but really take a long time, like throwing away your waste on a boat. You know, you, you don't, you have to go into a harbor and figure out exactly where you can dispose of things. And we would spend hours kind of figuring out negotiating um, small islands and figuring out where landfills were and how to get there. And he was always a part of that. And, um, or figure out where the store was and how we would get back and forth with lots of groceries to uh, provision the boat. And it was neat to include him on that so he could really kind of understand that it's not all about having fun or that he's entertained and sometimes it's about getting things done and that he is carrying things or helping out and participating in all the ways that we needed um, to be a team down there. You know, you mentioned managing waste. I know that Part of the motivation for going down there was to uh, try to contribute back environmentally. And uh, you're taking some samples to try to find microplastic levels in the Caribbean, as well as it, it looks like on your website here, you had a, a cleanup day on an island where you helped out there. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Yeah, we um, took samples of, from, of, of the water for microplastic content. And um, it was, uh, and we've, we've sent those and we don't have the results yet, but it was really neat um, to be able to participate, to really look at water that looks so clear and so pristine. And yet we knew the reality that um, that we couldn't eat seafood caught in waters right off the islands because they were so polluted with microplastics. So even though that uh, the, the contents were invisible to the naked eye, we knew that there was a lot of pollution going on. Um, we had various crew members take the samples, sometimes from the back of the CAS, the boat that we had, and sometimes from the dinghy to go out to more remote places. And um, Tobin started taking his own samples, and it was really cool to see. He would tell me he would be testing the water, and he'd have water bottles that he'd dip in to get um, water samples. And uh, we started um, doing a cleanup, an island cleanup. We went to a remote island one day and there was a mound of plastic and it was incredible to see after taking the microplastic um, samples to pick up pieces of plastic, whether it be like old oil cans or parts of toothbrushes or bags or the caps from like a milk bottle. Um, and a lot of times the plastic would be brittle and break in our hands. And it was so easy to realize that plastic breaks down and those brittle pieces could become smaller and smaller until they became intertwined with the sand and the soil content and eventually the water in the reefs. Um, and so the first day we kind of combed the, the, the sand and we filled a, a, a few bags and took what we could. There was a big mound that had everything from plastic lawn furniture to old nets um, and it was probably four or five feet high and about the same distance wide. And we thought, well, we can't take that. It's too big. And we sailed for another week or two and we would sail around to lots of islands and we would see old houses that had been completely abandoned and the people had left all of their stuff in probably because it was too expensive to remove once someone had died or maybe after a hurricane, um, had rendered it, um, unfit to live in people had abandoned sailboats and uh, they were in the process of sinking and we saw all of these um, piles of stuff decomposing in the environment and I kept thinking about that mound on the island and realized that nobody was coming back for it 
or that if someone was going to come back for it, it would have to be us. So we, um, we planned a day where we um, spent filling the dinghy with all the pieces of plastic, some of them really small to big hunks of plastic. And we filled up our cabin in our cockpit um, and we couldn't even sail back because we could not tack the boat. So we had to motor about three, three hours back and we, um, we disposed of all of it. And I think it was one of Tobin's favorite days because he would tell everybody, they would ask him how the islands were. And he would be like, Oh, I got to go to a dumpster and I threw all the plastic away. <laughs> so he's going to have memories of being a contributor to caring for the environment. And that's cool. Yeah. And I see him like carry that with him now. Like he'll see a plastic bottle somewhere and really want to pick it up. And so I, I see him making that connection in really small ways um, every day now. Mm, that's good. That's neat. So in episode 104, when you were on before, you explained a little bit some of the dangers of microplastics. And I think a lot of people know about the big floating sea of garbage out in the Pacific that just keeps growing. But perhaps fewer people understand what the impact of the microplastics might be. So um, can you educate us a little bit on that? Absolutely. And um, so microplastics, what happens with plastic is that it breaks down and it keeps breaking down until it's in microscopic pieces. And those pieces are so easily digested by um, animals that live in the water and they become toxic and toxic for us to consume as well. And a lot of residents on the islands um, have gotten food poisoning from consuming local seafood. And so when we were there, we knew that you cannot eat anything locally caught. And that's incredible because from the naked eye, the reefs look pristine and it looks like they're healthy and viable. But we know the plastic content that um, is building up in, in, in fish and other animals that live on the bottom of the water um, make them toxic and are really impairing the health of, um, of those animals and the sea environment. So what can people do? This is, this is an issue. I think, wow. I mean, our, our whole world uses plastics extensively. So what can we do to, to try to protect the marine biology? Right. Well, one thing that they're finding out, um, that releases a lot of microplastics into the environment are, um, the clothes that we outdoor enthusiasts wear that, um, that contain different fabrics. Um, and so the wicking material that we think is great um, for outdoor pursuits, when we wash up, that actually breaks down into small plastic pieces that gets into the wastewater and into our seas. And so one thing is being incredibly careful about what we buy and knowing that wool is better than some synthetics and, um, and, and knowing that. The other thing is really reducing what we consume. So an awareness about it and really asking ourselves, do we need to consume this? And when I'm buying something, when is the last time I'm going to use this? Am I getting enough utility out of it to um, balance out the risk uh, it poses for the environment? You know, when we are done with something and we throw it in the trash can, that's not the end of the story. It's real easy to think that it is. Yeah, we drag it to the curb, a truck comes and hauls it away. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Absolutely. And for us being on the boat, we were so aware that we were, you know, could be taking microplastic samples on one side and adding to the problem on the other side of the boat. So we really thought about like, what toothpaste are we using? Where are we spitting that toothpaste? What sunscreen are we using? What's coming off of that sunscreen into the water? And it's really being thoughtful and being aware. Um, and I don't think any of us can totally eliminate our impact on the environment, but 
perhaps we can make an effort to do a few small things that maybe make up for the uh, the impact that we do have. And, and it all starts with awareness. Absolutely. Mm. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tech.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. Well, do you have advice for people that would like to go sailing in the Virgin Islands? Yes. Um, I think the, the first thing really is to start sailing. And um, for those people who um, are qualified and have their skipper's license, um, to really get the cruising book and start reading and figuring out what they want it to look like. A lot of people go down um, to the islands for about a week. And so... You can over plan a week and want to go to more places than are possible to, uh, to squeeze in. But also the islands have distinct personalities. And so if what you're after is kind of an upscale experience and, um, want to be on the outskirts of resorts, um, that's definitely one kind of week to plan. And you can also decide to visit more out-of-the-way places and spend more time anchoring than mooring, less time in marinas, and more time in pristine environments. But that really takes kind of knowing um, the area. And um, the other thing that really helped us a lot was taking a day or two at the beginning to sail together as a crew so that we knew how to read one another, we knew um, how to communicate and we got comfortable um, on smaller sails and in safer conditions so that when the seas picked up, when the winds got stronger, we felt really confident as a crew working together. Mm, that's good. So what about tips or tricks for sailing? Any special advice on that? Absolutely. I think a couple things that um, we took away. One is if you're going with a group, we were an all-female crew. And so we often had redundant supplies like sunscreen. We'd have five bottles floating around. And so I think um, really simplifying and having one bottle of everything and having it be like a group a group thing. The other thing is really um, expecting everybody to store their things. Once a boat is under sail and gets sideways, things crash down and clatter. And the more you can have things tucked away and stored, the cleaner it is sailing. We also really relied on lots of plentiful snacks that were easy to grab. Um, you know, with a four-year-old and even with adults, people get really grumpy when they haven't eaten for a while. It can be hard to prepare food under sale. So we would do a lot of picnic style things of cutting up meat and apples and um, snacking. And it was really mood enhancing to to have that opportunity to get a quick 
fix and then, you know, get back to it as you still had a couple hours before you got to where you wanted to be for the evening. Good thoughts. So keep things ship shape, batten down the hatches when necessary, have lots of snacks around and don't overstuff. (laughs) (laughs) So one, there's a common theme with so many adventure sports and that is we always find ourselves in some sort of a situation where we have limited space, whether that's backpacking or the saddlebags on a motorcycle or a bicycle or in a sailboat or, you know, adventure traveling, your suitcase or your backpack. We're always trying to figure out how to go with less and our society especially in the United States, we're kind of more oriented, which I think can be a real mistake. But can't it be so liberating to get rid of all the extras and have the minimal amount that you need and see how that simplicity can add to life? Absolutely. You know, we um, we didn't we did not bring a lot of clothes. And that was really nice because you don't need to wear a lot of different things. You just need your bathing suit and a cover up and you're good to go. And you know, nobody really cared. And there was something really liberating about that. I don't think we looked in a mirror for weeks at a time. And, um, and it made things easy to get up and go. And also to not think that people really cared about your outer appearance, but really like what you brought to the table. How did you act? How did you, um, you know, respond when things got tough under sale and living in close quarters? How do you respect people? And it's nice to really focus on those inner qualities instead of outward looks. Oh, that's a neat lesson too. Isn't it fun? Man, you step out your door, you go on an adventure, and you you come back with all of these life lessons learned, right? I think it's so cool. That's the reason why I think people need to do more adventure. And Kai, you made that huge transition into a more adventure-focused lifestyle. What does adventure in general mean to you? I think it really comes down to um, embracing the uh, the unknown. Um, for me, it comes down to a way of looking at the world where I it's how I want to how I want to be. I really want to be wide open to possibilities, and I know that sometimes that means experiencing really uncomfortable things, and it means being hurt, and it means. Um, not always having a good time, but at the same time, it allows me to be open to see all the good and experience the beautiful and to really know that I'm alive. So Kai, you have a blog where you share a lot of your adventure experiences with people. Tell us about that. So I blog at KaiDelaney.com and, um, I also am currently, uh, writing a book about, um, single parenting and sailing and, kind of the possibilities that are inherent in any anyone's life and how we decide how to view those possibilities. Nice. So that's KaiDelaney.com, K-Y-D-E-L-A-N-E-Y.com, right? That's it. Okay. Well, I encourage all of our listeners, if you want to hear more and find out more about what Kai and Tobin are up to, then the blog is there and there's a lot there. I'm sure you have pictures and things like that from the trip. Absolutely. We're putting together, um, we had a photographer come with us, Maya, um, and Maya's putting together a, um, narrative, a photo of narrative right now of all of her beautiful photography, um, from the Caribbean. So that's not posted yet, but will be in the near future. Absolutely. Cool. Very fun. Well, do you have any final last words for us before we close today? Something inspirational or some advice that you think the listeners should hear? I think it's, um, Whenever you're contemplating going out and doing something, it can be really intimidating. And sometimes 
It doesn't even seem possible. You might not know how it's going to happen. But I think the desire and to keep on naming whatever it is that you want to go out there and do, be open that it might happen in different ways than you ever anticipated, but keep going after it and asking, how can I make it that, how can I make this possible? What can I do today to get a little bit closer to that goal? Mm. It's just a matter of keeping the goal in front of you so that you're reminded to look for those opportunities, huh? Absolutely. Nice. Well, Kai, thank you very much for your time today. It's a lot of fun to hear about your trip, and I am glad to hear about warm water and warm air and sunshine. That makes me feel better right now, so thanks for that. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Uh, You bet. And to all of our listeners out there, as always, until our next show, get out there and have some fun. Hey, don't forget our meetup on April the 22nd. It's going to be a ton of fun. How better to spend a Friday night, huh? Come and meet us. Let's meet you and Pete Schuster. Looking forward to it. 